Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Kieran Brady here. I just wanted to take this opportunity to again give credit to all involved at the Sunderland Community Soup Kitchen for all of the sterling work that they do throughout the year to aid and assist the vulnerable and needy throughout the city of Sunderland and surrounding areas. It's very sad that the people who are being asked to aid and assist such individuals come from the very same communities and often find themselves in situations which many would think of as deprived and impoverished, but it certainly seems to be the way that when care and concern is requested, it tends to come from people who have had shared or similar experiences, largely because those in the corridors of power often refuse to offer any such concern. So please, 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 if you can and you're disposed to, then please assist the Sunderland Community Soup Kitchen. You will be able to find all of the relevant contact details and the GoFundMe page on the Roker Report. I wish you all a very, very Merry Christmas and a peaceful and prosperous 2023. Thank you. Hello everyone, I'm Chris Wynn. Welcome to the Roker Report podcast in association with the Sunderland Community Soup Kitchen. And once again, we have something a little bit special. Today we're talking to, in my opinion, uh, one of the biggest characters in football, who during his time as a player and manager has claimed a first division title. And just to confirm, that means the Premier League for some of the, the younger listeners out there. Uh, three Scottish Premier League titles, two European Cups, three Scottish Cups, four English League Cups, one Scottish League Cup, a UEFA Cup finalist, and he also won the Conference or the National League in today's money. There's Many that I've missed that I'm sure he will remind me of. But to top it all off, he grew up feeling our pain as uh, fellow Sunderland fans. And, well, actually, although I think he actually possibly suffered more pain doing that than the rest of us, which we might uh, touch on. Uh, and, of course, he went on to become our manager at Sunderland as well. So today we are privileged to be speaking to Martin O'Neill. Hello, Martin. It's very nice, Chris. Thank you very much. Don't worry, I, I'll not be reminding you of uh, the... There, <laughs> Among the some very very good days, there've been uh, there've been plenty of poor days as well too. So well, I thought I thought you might straight away mention the Anglo Scottish Cup or something like that, or the home <laughs> the home championship. No. <laughs> well, strangely enough, why you should mention the Anglo Scottish Cup because it was a competition that devised away back years ago, and it was Brian Clough's first trophy at Nottingham Forest. And you know this year, he he must have done about 
50 interviews after the first European Cup final. And he keeps mentioning the uh, Anglo-Scottish Cup. He said that was the, that was, and I'll, I'll try and do the accent, not very good at it. And that was the first trophy, young man, that we put on the table. He said it's very, very important to have won something. So there, there you go. So whether it might not be top of our list, but certainly Brian Clough thinks about it a, a great deal of times or, or did do. Didn't, didn't that turn into the, the Texaco Cup or it was the Texaco Cup before that or something like that? You know, I you know, you you well you might well be right, or no, it might have been the Texaco before that. I right. think Texaco came before I was actually in England. So I think that, that that's right. It might it might have done, but this idea in Anglo-Scottish, which was essentially for the old that you would call championship teams now in the second division. So we we won a couple of big matches against Ayr and Kilmarnock. And um, and finally took her place and beat Leighton Orient in the final. I think it was over two legs. Yeah. So, but uh, listen, if it pleased the, the the master himself, then it ought to please us. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and I might, I might be wrong, but I'm sure there was one or two years where Irish clubs got involved. But I don't want to get into that. Well, you know, I could be on all day going through those bizarre, wonderful cups <laughs> that that uh, that went out of fashion. But uh, I have to admit, I mean, at the minute, I'm more than disappointed. You're not on our screens at the moment, talking us uh, through the World Cup. That is being played out as we speak but but how are you keeping martin in general how are you keeping thank you very much indeed i yes i'm going to do i'm going out now funnily enough to uh, koala lumper so to head out there because there is a tv station called astro 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 who work out of malaysia and i do work for them intermittently particularly when they when they're covering the premier league here but they've asked me to go out for the um for the quarterfinals, semifinals and finals. So I just, I think what I will do is I'll probably head to the quarterfinals and then just uh, take 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 a, a thought about it. It's not, it's just the length of time you're on a plane is the biggest problem for me. And even at my age now, I still don't like flying. So uh, uh, it's a long way away, but I'm, I'm doing some work for, for them. So it's not... Uh, it's not the British channels, but it's uh, it's at least an opportunity to watch the World Cup in another environment. Well, like like I said, I, you know, my early days, I was brought up on you, com- you know, you know, telling us telling us how it was on these World Cups and telling <laughs> telling your telling your fellow guests as well, you know, putting them in their place and saying, you know, I've I've got two European Cups on my CV. Never mind that World Cup business. Oh, do you remember? Uh, yeah, way back with Fiera and Cannavaro, that was uh, yeah. that years ago. But I uh, listen, all good fun at the time, I must admit. But uh, yeah, right enough. But like everything else, you have to be asked to go on these uh, stations, and uh, so I, I don't really put myself out too much anyway. So uh, that's that's the nature of it. Yeah, well, like I said, I'm disappointed at that fact. Yeah. But you do have a new book out. It's called uh, On Days Like These, uh, which is the story of your life in football, which, I mean, not just for any Sunderland fan, because obviously we're talking in the main Sunderland fans, but for anyone pretty much who was remotely interested in football. For me, it's a bit of a no-brainer to add to that uh, list to Santa in the lead up to Christmas and even beyond Christmas to add that book to anyone's collection. I've got mine right in front of me. I was showing you before. I devoured that in two days. It's genuinely a fascinating read, Martin. And, oh, do and you right? Oh, that's nice of you. you know, it's, absolutely, it's, a, it's absolutely fascinating. And towards the end, you mentioned how enjoyable it was for you to write it. But through writing it, was there any part of your career that you ended up thinking differently about after you'd actually put it down on paper? And one of the examples I think about was that first European Cup final that you maybe missed out on. It's a very good question. And, and you're right. What I tried to do was write it, well, the particular chapters, to write it as that 
that age, you know, I'm, I'm trying to say, look, for, for instance, you know, in childhood, trying to write it as a seven or eight year old. By the time I came to Nottingham Forest, first as a, as a, a young professional in, in, when I was 19, tried to write it like a 19 year old rather than thinking back, you know, over, over the years and then writing it as, a, as an, a, an elderly gentleman. So uh, from that viewpoint, well, your, 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 your point is taken as you're putting it down, as you're writing it. Sometimes you think, well, uh, you know, am I thinking? Am I thinking now? What were what were my thoughts at that particular time? So for the most part, I think I've tried to capture how I thought at the time, you know, as as much as anything else. And um, and in terms of reflections, yes, could I have could I have dealt with situations differently? Absolutely, <laughs> no, no, no question about that. You talk about the first European Cup final where myself. And another player, very, very, very good player called Archie Gemma. Both of us hadn't, um, we'd been injured in the lead up to the European Cup final. And we had participated in the, in the games beforehand. So we kind of felt that if we, uh, if we could get fit, then, then that we have a chance of playing. But in the meantime, Nottingham Forest had paid a million pounds, first million pounds player for Trevor Francis, who was an exceptional footballer. So, and the rules at that time were, even though he only, he, he was only eligible for the final, which was crazy, you know. But anyway, so, and I think Brian Clough was always going to play him. Anyways, it turns out Archie and I didn't play. Clough said, I can't risk uh, a couple of players going in without having trained for a couple of weeks, which is a fair point. You know, when I look at it now, I can see a managerial viewpoint rather than a player. But um, that was really disappointing. And of course, the two of us, if you see archive footage of the two of us as the players are, are running around the pitch at um, in uh, in Munich celebrating, you know we you you'd have you'd have thought that you know that uh, there was deaths in the family with the, the faces that we have, you know. So you just don't feel part of it, and so for and of course, Nottingham Forest are never going to get to another European Cup final, which we actually did. But at that particular moment, you think your chance of playing in a European final is gone. So hence the real sour face, I think, as much as anything else. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, fascinating reading it. And I, and I have to admit, I winced when um, you described how that medal dropped off the end of the table. But I'll, I'll kind oh, of that, that was that, Yeah, that was uh, very briefly. That was when Brian Clough came in in the dressing rooms afterwards. You know, all the celebrations were just dying down a little bit. And then he realised that there was the only medals that were given out on the day were medals for the players. So he wanted to have a medal or at least a medal cut. And then he was asking the substitutes to give up their medals uh, on that, and that time. And I only was asking, could I show my medal outside to my family? And then I would give it back to him for, for, to, for to be cut. And when he said, when he refused that, that's when I threw the medal or the little <laughs> box across the table. So uh, to, my, uh, to my eternal discredit now, but at the time, that's how I felt. Well, as you described, I mean, funny enough, you start, you know, you start the book at, at the beginning, as you described, you kind of walk us through um, your school days um, and you include a story describing how you got punished for your attempts to follow Sunderland's epic 1964 FA Cup quarterfinal tie with, with Manchester United from, from a distance, uh, which is what I was hinting at in the intro. Absolutely. So what, what had happened, I was a boarder at school in St. Columns in Derry, which was, you know, it was quite austere for boarders. And um, we had very, very few privileges, uh, things to do. Very, very seldom would see uh, any, well, there was no football on, but on, on a Saturday when we come in, 
We had we still even had a school up until half day on a Saturday. Then we would play Gaelic football. So by the time that we were coming in, the teleprinter, the only thing that we were ever allowed to see, the, the teleprinter and, and was coming on. And um, the teleprinter was on that particular Saturday was showing Sunderland 3-1 ahead at the Old Trafford. And uh, I thought, gee, this is fantastic. Going to be in the semi-final of the cup. And remember, Sunderland's second division, a championship now. Then Manchester United got two late goals, goes to 2-2, sorry, 3-3, replay at Roker Park. And John O'Hare, John O'Hare, who was a young apprentice at the time at Sunderland, and I end up meeting at, at Forest, tells me about that unbelievable night when the, when the barriers broke down. And there was, must have been, he said, it must have been at least 70,000 people in at Roker Park. And then I think it's Jim Montgomery Persaud throw, uh, kicks the ball straight out, I think, to Bobby Charlton. Bobby Charlton equalises 2-2 in the last minute, I think. And then eventually, after extra time, it goes to the third game. So this is where the points stick. So I must, I have to listen to this third game. I know it's going to be on radio. So I get this little, um, well, little crystal set from one of my day boyfriends, and I bring it in. So you're not allowed to have it. So by the time that we had said the rosary and all those sort of things that you're, you know, and, and finish late class, I nip up to my bedroom and I'm just hearing the bad news that Sunderland have been, yeah, even though they'd taken the lead at, at Leeds Road, Huddersfield, you know, I think Dennis Law scoring a few goals that night. And I uh, and just when the final whistle is going, the dean of the college comes in, uh, sees me with these crystal set and he's stuck into my ear. I lose my privileges. I get slapped six times with a big black thing yesterday or the, the following <laughs> morning. And uh, and I thought to myself, is my pain the same as Charlie Hurley's? You know, so, <laughs> and I honestly, I felt more for Sunderland. And my heavens, my hands were stinging for for the whole day, the whole day that was. But I have to say, the pain was was greater because Sunderland were not uh, were knocked out of the FA Cup. And um, yeah. but listen, you know, things things work out eventually. You know, they get promotion. Yeah. And uh, and from the previous year. Where that Tommy Harmer, do you remember Tommy Harmer? I think scored a late mm. goal up there when Chelsea beat Sunderland. Honestly, to, well, listen, and you, you, you can only be supporting Sunderland and having nothing but bad days. And then he, and then he, <laughs> then eventually, when I'm a professional footballer, professional player, and you don't have to have any any other interests other than your own and the team you're playing for. There I am cheering them on against uh, Leeds United <laughs> in '73. So anything, things work out well. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just just for people who might not be aware, I hope uh, most are, especially the younger ones. But uh, 1964, that quarterfinal, in that first game, three one up with four minutes left, then Bobby Charlton and George Best uh, score in the last four minutes to make it th uh, threes each. And like you said, at, at Roker Park, um, that epic night. I think the official attendance was forty six thousand, but yeah. it was probably yeah. double that. Yeah. And when you say the last minute, Bobby Charlton scored in the hundred twentieth minute. 120th, that's correct. That's absolutely yeah. right. Absolutely right. But John O'Hare, honestly, he tell he said it was an epic night. You know, the crowds going up to the game. It's it's mm. you know, you know, it's just a throwback to that 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 day. And and Roker Park was something really special, you know. Yeah. Well, I'll actually I'll come back to that. But but I mean, just because in the book and and you've already touched on obviously you were going to those lengths to see what was going on in the world of Sunderland. But in the book, it's just a statement that. You know, Sunderland had just become your team. And you mentioned the love of, you know, the likes of Charlie L. You mentioned John Johnny Cross and those two in particular. But, I mean, I, I grew up with my dad in my ear, hammering home stories of Charlie Early, Brian Clough, Len Shackleton, Monty Save. And, but he made sure I understood. But, but for, for you, what was that hook that came all the way 
across to kind of kill Rhea and pulled you into to follow and something. I, I think well, very naturally, you know, you as where I where I was born, Northern Ireland, you, you're a, and you're if you're a Catholic or Protestant, it's either either Celtic or Rangers. So that's a, a massive draw. But you have to have an English team growing up. So I was the only one in both primary school and and in in grammar school to support Sunderland because Sunderland. I mean. Fascinated with Charlie Hurley, obviously, and uh, and Johnny Crosson, who who came from uh, from the very city of where I was boarding, Derry City, and so that was the connection. Strangely enough, I have I have a a photograph of um, my curé from the village I was in that we we were uh, had a Gaelic team then an under fifteen Gaelic team, and um, it's just this photograph. I came across it about a couple of years ago. It's under fifteen team taken at the mm-hmm. time. And on the back, I've written down all the names of all the all the, all the people who are in the photograph. And when I get to my name, I actually write Charlie Hurley as my name. <laughs> so if, if that that that's that's more than a fascination, isn't it? Really, and it was yeah, yeah. delightful to hear that he was voted Player of the Century as well, too, which is fantastic. Yeah, that Charlie Hurley. I mean, it was. 30 plus years after he retired, he got voted player of the century, which is, uh, which is pretty, pretty amazing. Listen, the fascination with Sunderland became that and the red and white, the red and white, the, the striped, the striped shirts. And then of course I get the bubblegum cards as well too, you know, so, and then I get the likes of Stan Anderson and people who get here. So yeah, just absolutely fascinated. And it seemed as if that um, the journey was always, that it was going to be it was going to be filled with agony, and I suppose there was a there was a part of me loved that agony as well too. Uh, with with Sunderland, it's definitely kind of the beauties in the struggle and all of that sort of <laughs> stuff. But, uh, but um, I obviously want to get on your onto your time at Sunderland, but I can't speak to you without um, mentioning obviously those days at Nottingham Forest um, because you know just just completely epic days. I love reading around that that period about Nottingham Forest. I mean, you, you were spotted by Nottingham Forest and came across to England, made your debut in 1971, I think. But And I might be, be wrong with this one, but I think it was the beginning of the following season in September 1972, because I think Forest were relegated that previous year, mm-hmm. that you first paid a visit to Roker Park as a player. And it, it was the year we won the FA Cup, but at this time it was Alan Brown who was still in charge, who was a big influence on, on Brian Clough and obviously brought him to Sunderland. And although there was just over kind of fourteen thousand there, and you were on the wrong end of a four-one defeat, mm-hmm. how, how was your ex- first experience of of playing at Rugby Park? I remember Matt Gillies asking uh, Bert Johnson, who who was our youth team manager and also was doing a lot of scouting for us at the time, scouting opposition, and he he gave us such a report on Sunderland that I thought to myself, we better just not turn up here because he said they were by far the best side in the division at the time. Now, Sunderland didn't go up that year, you know, So, but he said they were by far the best footballing side. So I think by the time that we arrived at Roker Park, we, we were already 3-0 down, you know. So, But um, they give us a hammering. And even though we actually beat Sunderland that season towards the end, I think their their preparations in their mind were for Wembley as much as anything else, you know. So, my, but my first visit to Roper Park, absolutely. And the interesting thing about it is that 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 Alan Brown that you're talking about as the, as the manager, who was the great stubborn manager of Sunderland, because that's the interesting thing when you mention because a man called Alan Brown becomes our manager <laughs> at uh, at Nottingham Forest about. Um, uh, yes, about a year later, the Scottish International, 
won a, won a, an FA Cup medal with, um, sorry, got in the final with Luton against Nottingham Forest in 1959. So a different fellow. No, Alan Brown, Brian Cuff had a great regard for, great regard. Yeah. I mean, in, in many aspects, you know, I think sometimes a grudging regard for him because he was he was a, yeah. uh, he was a real stubborn man. It, it was only, I think it was about two months before he got the sack and Bob Stoker took over and then we went on that cup run. So, yeah, I think it was it was one of Alan Brown's last jobs, I think, before um, before he kind of... Yes. But, uh, you know, you obviously go on, and uh, Brian Clough uh, appointed manager in Nottingham Forest, January 1975. But it, it's funny because, you know, everyone says Brian Clough, Nottingham Forest, and, and immediately you switch on to European Cups, League Championships. But for the remainder of that first season... Forrest really struggled and I think he went 11 without a win during that time and obviously you hear so much about Brian Clough and that, that kind of the bullish character when everything's going great but was he was he any different um, during those type of spells when well especially during that initial period when things weren't quite going so well? Well absolutely and now, now I have to cast my memory my mind back to these <laughs> things but that's true now so what you had you had a Brian Clough arriving at Nottingham Forest there uh, obviously chastened a little bit by by his um, by his forty four days at Leeds United that had, mm. uh, that had come to an abrupt end. So he had been um, this couple of months where he was in limbo really, and then for Nottingham Forest, the second division side, to have this fellow who was let's be fair about it was a big big figure in television. Never mind football. I mean, he was on Michael Parkinson's show about every third week or something <laughs> this year. So, and suddenly here he is arriving at the, at the second division club just up the road from Derby. And but your point, I take entirely. We had we had a, obviously a charismatic character coming, and uh, and we won the first two games. We won at Tottenham Hotspur in an FA Cup replay, and then we won at Fulham in a league game. So we stayed these four days down at Bisham Abbey down 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 in um, near Marlow, village of Marlow, and those were great days. You're dead right. We didn't win another game. I think it's for 16 matches. Can you imagine in in the current game now? But Brian Clough, in fairness, was unsackable at the time. His character, his whole character, would have been too strong for the board members to even think about it. And uh, but yes, you're you're right. We did see a change. He came in first of all. He was saying to us, oh, "Listen, don't worry about the results." He said, "Let me worry about that. You do the playing." And then after about six or seven weeks, when we were when we weren't doing the playing and not getting a result, his his attitude was changing completely, you know. And uh, he became he became, I think, uh, a, 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 um, certainly a bit more aggressive in his team talks. Anyway, let me put it this way. But really, really, when when his uh, sidekick Peter Taylor arrived about eighteen months later and came to the football club in around about June of 1976. That's when it really, we saw, a genuinely saw a rejuvenated club. I'm not saying for one minute that he was morose. I don't mean that in that sense. But we saw, we saw a, a, new, a new character coming in again. And Peter Taylor was great for Brian Clough because he gave him this, um, he gave him this great self-belief. And again, again, Brian Clough would have survived, he would have prospered anywhere, but he just also, like some of us, we still need someone behind you to say, hey, listen, you're the man, you're great. I can I can deal with a couple of players coming into the football club. And Peter Taylor was a really good spotter of talent, but he was great for Brian Clough. So the two of them together, you just knew that something was really going to happen. Is it too simplistic to say that they needed each other to create these successful sides at Derby and Forest? No, no, absolutely not. I, I, I absolutely agree with you. I really do agree with you. 
and Brian Clough, for all his uh, for all his uh, outward show of amazing confidence, you know, could be uh, you know could be uh, uh, introvert is, is 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 not the right word, but he could be. He needed he needed Peter Taylor as much as anything else, you know. He needed them, and it sounds crazy to say that. And Peter Taylor obviously needed someone, a front man like like uh, like Brian Clough, for for the two of them to interact in a in a in a manner in which they did do. And it's really sad to know that they you know that Peter Taylor eventually died before um, before um, that they made it up. They they fell out uh, big time because Peter Taylor packed in at Nottingham Forest and then the next thing you know he had arrived at Derby County that's a that's a, a separate story but the two of them together absolutely because we were they were brilliant I mean and then just going towards the end of that that your time at Nottingham Forest I mean it didn't end the way you would have liked and that that kind of that it, that comes across in the pages and it's clear in the book that you know it it could have ended in in a better way but I mean it, it doesn't seem to impact what you thought of, uh, what you thought of, and think of Brian Clough and Peter Taylor to this day, because when when you read it on a page, some of the things that they did, you know, especially in that the transfer that could have possibly happened to, to Coventry and things like that, that it sounds pretty vindictive. But I guess football is a is a kind of different world to anything else in that respect. It's a good point, absolutely. Yeah, I and I did, and I felt that um, I felt during the time that uh, they they could have handled the situations particularly with myself, a bit better. But then they, they would be turned around and say, well, listen, you, you were a bit of a renegade and you, and, and, uh, and, uh, you, you probably thought you were miles better than you were. And, you know, this was our way of, of, uh, of uh, pinning you to the floor, as it were. You know, so mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of those things, maybe, maybe um, what had happened is that I had, yeah, I didn't turn up for a game because I'd been, I I wanted to play centre midfield, and the next thing you know, uh, it, it 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 didn't happen. I'd been playing wide right hand side for years, and I thought I could maybe do a job in there. Anyways, it turns out I was made substitute for this game. And that's when I went in to tell them I'm not turning up for the match. Which I must I must admit now, if any footballer said to me that as a manager, I would I would. At lambast verbally lambast the same <laughs> fellow. So I, I actually see Brian Clough's side, and would you believe it? The game, the game was called off the next morning. But Brian Clough made this special journey over to the city ground to see if I was on the bus. So I knew that I couldn't win from that minute onwards. And then, of course, then the last, the last uh, five or six, seven weeks were, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, around about that time were particularly difficult. Even though. Even though he he said to me, I'd, I'd done my punishment, as it were, and then I get on the plane to go to Tokyo for the World <laughs> Club Championship, and I play in that game. But then I come back, and he said, "No, son, your your uh, your suspension is still not finished. Get back home again." Ah, crazy, crazy day. Well, that, I, I am chuckling because I did read that passage, thinking if if a player did that to Martin O'Neill, the manager, he probably wouldn't have even made the bench. It was absolutely. I mean, that's the whole point. I must admit. And when I when I was putting this down, my uh, one of my daughters, two daughters, who was uh, over my shoulder, kind of reading. She said, "Dad, how would you have felt yourself?" Absolutely, into manager. Oh, yeah, that's it. yeah. Oh, the stuff. And, and and I mean, just on Brian Clough as well. I'm sure that he mentioned 
once or twice, I'm sure, his goal-scoring record at Sunderland <laughs> while um, you were a player at Nottingham Forest and he was the manager. He also said publicly, uh, I think more than once, that it was his happiest time in football when, when he was at Sunderland. And, and this included, you know, managing, you know, teams that were winning titles, European Cups. Um, I mean, d- did he ever know that you grew up supporting Sunderland? I mean, was that ever a conversation? Well, it's it it is it's a really strange thing when you when you think that honestly, I know that in Boxing Day of nineteen sixty two, when um and you see that famous photograph of him lying down in the ground in a frozen Roper Park, and um, and really when the game should never have been played for a start and his career's finished, and I, honestly, and I, and and he had scored a bag full of goals up until then at that time. And I'm thinking, uh, and it was the great freeze of 1963, but that was his, effectively his career over. Did I ever think when I was when I was shedding tears over this this young centre forward or 28 or 29 year old centre forward being injured, and then suddenly Sunderland's chances of getting into the into the big division, you know, we were going to be curtailed by because of it. Then did I ever think that this fellow would cause me all sorts of anxiety and and uh, and great days as well too? So absolutely, I think he, I think he, I did one one day, one day uh, we were walking along the sands of uh, I I I think it was it might have been Benidorm, it might have been Mallorca, I'm not so sure. It was one of his February breaks, and um, and I got a chance. He he pulled me into his into his conversation. He had a couple of his brothers there with him at that time, so it was a little. As Brian Clough used to break off a lot of times during uh, during the course of the year, which we loved and must admit, absolutely loved. And he would be a bit more relaxed as well too. And so I think that, and I I don't think I'm making this up, but I think that was the time that I mentioned to him that I was a big Sunderland supporter, and that actually uh, that day I remember vividly in 1962 when he gets injured because the pictures come in the following was it the following day or the day after that there. And and was Barry had beaten him, and and I think Charlie Hurley missed a penalty as well too in the day. I, I, certainly Sunderland missed a penalty in the in the game, and it's the first time that Sunderland had been beaten for two years. So he was amazed at the time that I that I knew these things, you know, at the time. So, but did it did it change his mind about me? Not at all. Absolutely <laughs> not. Absolutely not. He might have just said, "Hey, son, that's a really nice story." He said, "But just get on with the playing next week," you know. Yeah, he never forgave uh, Bob Stoke or that. Uh, no, he did that. not. He did uh, not. He never did. You're dead right. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. But uh, but yeah, I mean, after you played days, you, you you moved into management. You started off at Grantham Town, moved to Shepshed, and then Wickham Wanderers. And and one one statement that, that kind of jumped out in the book was that you you don't necessarily agree that it's a must for managers to start kind of learning their trade down in in that lower leagues. But do you think the fact that you were forced to do it in that way in many respects that it gave you it almost gave you a better foundation in becoming a top manager because you were forced to do it that way right okay that's a very good point i think yeah if if for instance i started when i met peter taylor uh by chance and he said i saw that you know i thought you would have gone into management it was the first time i really thought about it and uh, so i started to apply for a lot of jobs and if someone had said to me, "Oh, by the way, you um, you go and manage, um, you go and manage, uh, let's say a side in the championship immediately," I would have taken that opportunity. The reason being is that because I always had this feeling that if I go down low, down, okay, your results are not shown, you're not in the limelight. However, this idea of making loads of mistakes. Let's say I was the chairman of of um, uh, chairman of Bradford City, for instance, you know. And then suddenly this, this player who had played at a decent level as a player 
but was down in the in the Vauxhall Conference and can't win a game. Well, I'm not exactly going to be racing out to 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 interview this fellow for 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 my job. That was the point. So when I went to when I went uh, down to Wickham Wanderers, I felt this has to work. This really has to work for me because I might not get an opportunity. I might just go into the wilderness. And if they don't, if we can't win games, then your 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 name is never going to be about. And it was not. As I I actually fell in love with Wickham Wanderers, but I I loved my my time there. So it wasn't as if I didn't think immediately. I'm looking at a stepping stone. But what I meant to say is that, that if I don't succeed, then the chances of of uh, of uh, managing at a higher level. I'd have thought that would have lessened. That's my point, and I still stick to it, regardless of what happens. Would I have liked to have gone in as a as a manager of uh, even uh, Sunderland at an early age? Of course, I would have taken the chance with that. You definitely do, and here's the point that I I, I think that you're uh, you're probably right, and you do learn some things. You are a bit out of the limelight, but you still have to win. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, and obviously it leads to to huge success with Leicester City, Celtic, Aston Villa. But but just to touch on your time at Leicester from from a Sunderland point of view, I was at both legs of the League Cup semi final at Filbert Street and the Stadium Alight, uh, nineteen ninety eight ninety nine, yep. um, that season. And Sunderland were flying at the time. You know, we were breaking all sorts of records under Peter Reid on the way to the Premier League. It was because obviously Leicester were a Premier League side and, you know, we were playing, we were in the, the second tier. We were top of the league that season. But seeing that Leicester City side in the flesh in those two games was, was something else. Because to this day, and, and I, I had the conversation at the time, that I don't think I've seen a more organised team than that Leicester City side in those two legs. Because we, we tried to do, you know, we had these wingers and we had Quinn and Phillips and all this sort of stuff and the other thing I remember from those two games was Tony Cotty but I always knew he was a good player mm. but in those two games he was incredible and scored three goals across the two legs scoring all, all of Leicester's goals to take them through uh, to the final but but the other thing I remember those two were just they, they were great games as well night games at Filbert Street and Stadium Alive. Right. Okay. So we got to the Stadium of Light. You're right. For the first game, we we play really, really well in the game, really well, and uh, are in charge of the game for most most of the time. Not for one minute did I think that this was going to be a, a, a an easy run down at Filbert Street. Far from it. But honestly, I'll tell you something. We were over overrun by Sunderland in this in the in the game, and Tony Cotty comes up with a big goal for us. Otherwise, it was a long, long, long evening. Honestly, Sunderland were fantastic in the second game. Really fantastic. And uh, and uh, I'm telling you, I'm speaking to you now, having got through, I was a really worried man at the time. So all that organisation you're talking about, I, I I couldn't see as Sunderland were cutting through us so easily. And um, and Tony, Tony, who had been probably at the at the in the autumn of his career, could still conjure a goal for us, and he did, and he did. Uh, brilliantly to, to get the goal. Otherwise, we were in serious trouble. Well, let me put it this way. If he hadn't done that there, I believe that you would have been at Wembley and, and not us, honestly. So the second game was really difficult for us. Yeah, well, with with, with a bunch of centre-halves like Walsh, Taggart, Elliot, Gilchrist, <laughs> players well, like that. You felt as if you had a chance. Elliot, um, Elliot was, uh, he was actually a super player for us because he could... Uh, he could deal with the ball. He could uh, very, very comfortable for a centre half, and could score a goal at either end if you if you needed. And funnily enough, the um, 
the following year, uh, the year 2000, he scored both goals in the League Cup final for us at, uh, at Tranmere. So, yeah, he was he was a handful and you always felt as if you've still got a chance in the game. But that didn't stop Sunderland from running riot that uh, for about, must have been, to me, you might think it was only for about 20 minutes. For me, it seemed about 87, <laughs> to tell you the truth. <laughs> Yeah, Matt, I remember Matt Elliott being that emergency striker. But uh, but yeah, I mean, j- just a few years on, something you briefly, really briefly mentioned uh, in the book was um, interviewing for the English national job in 2006. Mm-hmm. I mean, how, how was that experience interviewing um, for that? And, and how close do you think you ended up well, that, coming to getting the job? That's a very good point that people who've read the book said you seem to gloss over that. You just mentioned when you're talking to... Uh, when you're talking to uh, Doug Ellis, that you say that you mentioned uh, about the England thing. And then I've had some people say, oh, I would like you to, to, to have elaborated on it. No, and it's probably very true. Maybe I felt at the time. Anyway, here's, here's, here, here was really uh, how it came about. First of all, I had left Celtic because my wife's, um, my wife's illness. Uh, and I was just, I'm fortunate enough to be able to take some time out. A lot of men and a lot of people and families can't afford to do that there. So in that aspect, I was uh, kind of fortunate, but I, I realized that people have to, with illnesses in their family, they still have to go and work and have to do a lot of things. So I've got much regard for that. But anyway, so uh, as she's getting as she's getting better, then the chance, then I, I probably wanted really to, to go back into club management as much as anything else. Maybe that was at the back of my mind. And also the fact is that, you know, you, you feel that the England job is such a privileged position and, and you feel as if you, you, should be, you should be winning European Cups before that. You know what I'm saying? That you, as a manager, you feel as if that, that your entitlement really should be after, after a phenomenal success as a, as a manager, like three European Cups and... And uh, and two world club championships and uh, beside you, but in terms of uh, in terms of the yeah the the interview the interview itself, I I remember absolutely uh, doing it at the time. Um, maybe uh, uh, interviewing sometimes with me becomes a bit of a problem. You know, I'm, I I either say too much or sometimes just clam up and say nothing. So I think that the I think somewhere in between might have helped. And probably deep down, I maybe give the the um, I maybe give the um, the uh, the board members uh, the impression that I probably maybe wanted to go back into club management. I think that there was some something in that there, you know that that was that was probably right. But yes, it was it was honestly genuine honour to have been to have been in the shortlist anyway at the time. Yeah. Yeah, and I think um, well, how it turned out. Um, I think most English fans probably wish you, you'd get in the job for a while. But but I mean, the 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 opportunity to become Sunderland's manager came in uh, November twenty eleven. Uh, Steve Bruce um had just left the club, and again, you describe those early conversations in the book, and I mean, it comes across slightly reading between the lines. So mm-hmm. you might have to see if I'm wrong here, but it seems like reading between the lines, you had initial concerns. But you you kind of repeat that it was the pull of managing Sunderland in the book. But do you think if it hadn't have been the Sunderland job you were discussing at the time, and it was that discussion with Alice Short, but it was a random club, okay. that the alarm bells might have been ringing and you might I, not I, have actually I, taken the job? I know this for certain. I wouldn't have done it. No, I would. I wouldn't have done it. It was. It was. Um, it was uh, the lure of Sunderland when they come up to it. Uh, Niall, Niall Quinn at the time uh, got in touch with me. Said, uh, and I had an opportunity to to. Uh, or possibility of managing something sometime sometime before that, and uh, so it didn't um, 
and it didn't happen. But this time, I remember Niall Quinn saying to me, "I know, I think it's your time. I think you know could do with you coming up. We're we're in a, a bit of trouble." And uh, and I and genuinely, I, wa- I wanted to come. I wanted to manage the football club, and uh, really, and it and it didn't matter. So that was you know heart ruling head as much as anything else. But even so, so we get up there. Or first, um, by the time that we played on the on the Sunday against Blackburn, we dropped into the bottom three. But just to win that game, uh, young Vaughan scoring that goal, which was fantastic, you know, and for us to win the game. And then, even though we lost to Tottenham the following following week, we started going on a little bit of a roll. Won at QPR, won the games, won some matches, and soon we were out of trouble. But to me, the most the biggest disappointment was obviously not playing well enough and not playing well enough, not playing at all against Everton in the uh, in the quarterfinal replay. You know. That was the point, you know, to see to see the fans queuing up at uh, at the Stadium of Light, you know, honestly. Yeah, I'll come back onto that because that was it. That was a bit of a special night. But, but one thing I wanted to ask you about um, coming to Sunderland because one thing you just straight away you said, right, well, I'm appointed Sunderland manager, but then you say that the decision from John Robertson not to come with you after what happened with Aston Villa and come with you as your assistant. I mean, did, I mean, was that was that a surprise to you? But with the way Villa ended, but no. How much of it was that was a blow for you? John Robertson, Steve Walford uh, were very, very important to me. And uh, obviously my goalkeeping coach, Seamus McDonald, who I think is really just uh, actually a brilliant goalkeeping coach because he gets he gets into the minds of the goalkeepers. And in actual fact, the goalkeepers, a lot of the goalkeepers still keep in touch with them for all the time. Both, you know, a young lad that uh, was a goalkeeper, you know, obviously went on to Liverpool and really goalkeepers at Aston Villa stay in touch with Seamus all the time. So they've really liked him as a, a uh, as a goalkeeping coach. However, John Robertson, very, very, very important. John had fallen out of love with the game at Aston Villa in the la- in the latter stages. Not so much for not not so much for players. He'd always had a decent rumble. But I just I I don't know what had happened. And John John is at uh, this minute and it's not in the best of health. And maybe that was the, the the start of things as well too. So he just he just he said himself he kind of fallen out of love with the game with the as he saw it then. And uh, when I asked him about going up to to Sunderland, he said, "Listen, Martin, you don't mind I'll politely say no, but that was it." And I I actually knew that he wouldn't too, you know, because of the travelling. He was ensconced in Nottingham at the time, back in Nottingham. He had his own family at that stage to do, and and I think it was the, a lot of those things. So I don't think he just really wanted to uproot again. And fine, absolutely. Did did we miss him? Absolutely, of course we did. Um, a way in the way that I think that Brian Clough would have missed Peter Taylor in many aspects. But that that it didn't matter when John wasn't there. We started to win the games early, and I think that gave it it certainly gave the owner a false impression of of what we were like. That was my concern. And when he says at the end, uh, when he and the um, the lady chief executive come to me that the, before we play Manchester United in the last day of the season and says that the only player that we need to re- replace was Nicholas Bentner. And I thought, oh, wait, wait a minute. You know, I think we need, I think we need a few more than that. And that, 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 that was the point. And pre-season, we went to, we went down to South Korea and I took a lot of the younger players there. And the truth is this year that uh, I was only to, it was only to, to verify what I knew before that the, the younger players at the football club were not up to the task. And I don't think one of them in my time there has ever come through to play to, at a half decent level. 
I knew that at the time, trying to tell, trying to tell, um, what shall I say, the owner that, the, that you know, that we need to, we need, actually do need to invest. And the, the point is, say, I thought I'd earned some brownie points, really, because I had not spent anything in the January transfer window. I took a couple of loan players, you know, and, and, uh, and thought, uh, I thought, listen, we'll see this through and I'll earn these brownie. In my mind, I thought, I'll earn these brownie points. And so that come, uh, come the, um, come, if we, if we stay in this division, we can relook at it during, during the, uh, during the close season. Then I felt that that was the case. Listen, it sounds as if it's all, all one sided, but that's, well, that's no, I, well, I want, I want to, I want to kind of come back onto the, the, the running of the club because I think it's, well, I think it's accepted we're a bit of a basket case of a club at the, the, the top end back then. But, you know, it's it's kind of pretty much well, almost to the day. It's eleven years since your appointment mm-hmm. uh, at Sunderland, and you know, being understatement to say at the time it was a it was a popular appointment because mm-hmm. it was. I mean, everyone was behind the appointment. Everyone was behind you. Everyone wanted to make it work. But I mean, from you know, from going back to those days as a you know as a schoolboy trying to catch up with Sunderland, I mean, what what was that like for you? Forty thousand at the stadium, and like you're in that dugout. And you have that last minute goal because I mean in the book you you kind of say it took your breath away that kind of reaction to the goal and your first experience as manager of the club. Well, if I if if I could take you back first of all the moment that that we scored the the winning goal against Blackburn Rovers, but in a game that we probably really had to win because you know we we had as I say that morning we were definitely we dropped it before the game kicked off we were in the bottom three. And if we can't beat Blackburn Rovers at home, you know, who were kind of semi-struggling themselves, then it's going to be a long time. But we've got the three points in the board. But obviously, the epic game against uh, against uh, Manchester City, just extraordinary. And for that, you know, for that alone, if, 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 I, if I turned around and said, well, listen here, just to hear that enormous roar going up for, for, for that game. And in actual fact, throughout the game, because the, the crowds, you know, sometimes, you know, when, when you're in the stadium of light and the crowd are urging you on, and, and then the minute you put two back, two passes going backwards, then there's a big, like, most grounds, you go, oh. <laughs> that, that particular day against Man City, because we had so many, we had midfield players playing in full-back positions. We had all this here, the crowd were right behind you, right from the start. And so every every tackle that was made, every clearance that was made was roared. But to to for 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 the winning goal, it was just it, that was worth it. That was really worth it. If I if I could turn around, and I shouldn't, as a manager, you're supposed to talk about loads of games rather than one. But that was special. That that and that that was really everything. And that was something that I really wanted to try and recreate for for most weeks, if it was possible. And one of the few occasions you were glad that a player completely ignored uh, your instruction, I think, um, with, with well, yeah. well, yeah. not, not, well, to, yeah. not taking it into the corner. Absolutely, absolutely <laughs> right. He decides, he decides, that, no, I won't. And I'm thinking to myself, will he do this? Not at all. I knew that. <laughs> because it's a funny thing, you know, players, particularly young players, have no idea. Their, their, their thoughts in the game are totally different to the manager's thoughts, you know, absolutely. And this idea that he could dribble and maybe even lose it in Manchester City, swarm all over us again, absolutely. And what does he do? He sticks it in the net, which was his big moment anyway. And I, I don't know where he is now, uh, but, um, I, uh, yeah, honestly, he, that was brilliant. He did have ability. He did have nice ability. Just uh, I, I don't think that... Um, he was uh, particularly at that stage. I didn't think that he was uh, 
uh, physically equipped really to deal with uh, to deal with the big league. I, I don't think he was equipped to deal with the kisses he got when he ran into the crowd as well. But, uh, <laughs> but that's that's another story. But uh, a, a, a couple of months later, your first experience of the time where your derby uh, came up at, at uh, St James's Park and typical derby: eight yellow cards, two red cards. Although I think Catmulls was technically after the the, the final whistle. <laughs> And we all be equalised in the last minute to take a point for Newcastle. And, you know, you've been involved in European Cup finals, old firm derbies, you know, which is its own thing altogether. So, so how did the North East derby compare in terms of that intensity to, to other games you've been involved in? OK, right. It, 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 it was really big. Obviously, I've been involved in, in uh, the old firm view of Celtic and Rangers. Mm. You know, but when, when, when that bus is travelling up to Newcastle, and the last, say it's the last four hundred yards, where the bus can hardly move, where the people are 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 are, are almost breaking down your windows and stuff like this. Here, there's actually, believe it or not, there is a, a what shall I say, a frightening excitement about it all. Do you know, it's it's really great. But and the bus pulls in, and you and um, and you the, the about the eight or nine yards, you still have to walk. From that there into the sanctuary of of St James's, and you feel God Almighty, I can't wait to get into this dressing room as quickly as possible. But then they, and then obviously our fans are stuck up up in the gods. You know, I I don't know if ever if ever a stadium was designed to have fans closer to the angels than closer to the pitch is amazing. But anyway, but for us to and then. We're leading in the game. We're we're doing really well in the match. Really well. We're 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 uh, not only are we defending strongly and stoutly, but we look as if we're going to take the game. And then, then um, who was the wee lad that made that? He made a daft challenge in the penalty box. You know, Fraser Campbell. That's it. And honestly, I could have mauled him at the end of the game. <laughs> Seriously, he's got. You see, I see it now, and I see it. Fraser, don't dive in. Don't dive in. Don't dive. In. Oh, you just dived in. And it was really because we have the game won. You have the game won at there, and that was uh, that. You know, in a in a sense, I remember my feeling was possible bit of relief that we're that we've got something out of the game at the time. Two really really disappointing or disappointment because we we've, we should see the game through. Uh, and uh, and three, uh, where is that Fraser Campbell now to get him? You know, <laughs> well, you, you mentioned as well that that um, that FA Cup quarter final replay against Everton because you know it, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about your your school days listening into that quarter final result in 1964, 50 years previous, and there's, there's kind of parallels there, you know, with with kind of this quarter final. I mean, did you take a minute to think, God, you know, I was listening to this kind of 50 years ago, and now I'm now I'm involved in this. Oh, absolutely, absolutely right. Maybe I do, I don't enhance that in the book, but absolutely, of course. And it was to see it was to see people uh, queuing up for tickets, and I think this brings me back to those days. And where you see that you know the black and white of of, uh, of people with their caps on and standing talking to each other, or whatever the case may be, waiting to waiting for their turn to get their ticket. Yeah, absolutely, it did. It was a real throwback. And um, we and having done having done really well, where we could easily have won the game at, at Goodison Park, and then to come up and think we're ready for this, and the crowd was ready for it. Everybody, you know what? You know, unfortunately, the people that uh, that are supposed to do the playing uh, and and managing, you know, at the end of the day, just a real disappointment. 
genuinely really, really, really disappointed just to have got to Wembley, you know, regardless of what happens in the semi-final. And I'm not really a great believer in that the semi-final should be played at Wembley. I, I, you know, it seemed the FA Cup has definitely lost a, a bit of luster along the way here because there seems to be far more important things. But when I was growing up, the FA Cup might even have been more important than the league at the time, you know, for so that night for us not even to turn up was incredibly disappointing. Yeah, yeah. You said at the end of the season you had that strange conversation. Um, you'd only had six months in the job, but you finished thirteenth, nine points above the drop, seven behind Liverpool, who finished in eighth. Actually, you reached the quarterfinal of the cup, and then you had that conversation where they said you, they didn't think we needed to strengthen much. You managed to bring Adam Johnson and, and Stephen uh, Fletcher into the club, but yeah. but the the impression you know from the book that you know that keeps coming across again and again in those Sunderland pages is that. You were kind of fighting the tide from the hierarchy of the club who were kind of fighting you almost in what you wanted to, to do with the club. I, I, I have to say that that, that is right. That's, uh, you know, that 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 was my my not just a viewpoint. I would stand by that. Absolutely. It was um, it was a feeling there that the, the fight to get Stephen Fletcher. And I mean, if you tell me if I say to you that no, I think my the first signing I did and that must have been around about this time was actually um uh, Louis Saha, who was, uh, you know, Louis Saha coming on a, free. Uh, that, no, on a free transfer, who had retired from the game, who'd actually retired from the game itself and was probably lying in a beach somewhere at the time. And those are not what, um, and Louis Saha was a really fine, fine player in his, in his career. But, you know, that, that is, that's, that's not how you want to set off in the, in the, um, when the fixture list is out and, uh, and the new season is almost upon you. And we, uh, and just to compound issues as well, too, we can't play our opening game. You know, we can't play our opening match at at, um, at the Stadium of Light. And you know what? And, I, and you might think this is an excuse, but psychologically, even early on, you feel as if you're a game behind. And by the time that we did play the, the that game, you know, quite some months later, you know, it didn't seem to matter anymore at that stage. So psychologically, you're fighting, you're 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 fighting a battle. It seems here as if I, I do not want to come across here as uh, uh, as an excuse maker at the end of the day. But it was, um, yeah, Sunderland. It, it was definitely a, a, it was a big fight to get Stephen Fletcher on, uh, on on board. And as it turns out, Fletcher Fletcher's goals, uh, well, certainly had a a big part to play in the club staying in the in the league. You know. Yeah, and I mean, I like Bruce Springsteen as much as the next man, but um, that, you know, not, not to cancel a football game. You know, that there's limits to, to Bruce there, Springsteen. There's limits, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. I love Bruce Springsteen, and they went to the concert. It's great, and it was great. But now I'm more concerned about the pitch underneath. You know, and I mean, we need to, we need to have a surface to play on. I mean, I mean, I haven't experienced that that sort of chaos and what it was like at some of the time. Were you surprised at all that we ended up dropping like a stone like we did? I, no, I, I don't. I, I mean, obviously, Paulo De Canio came in and uh, won that great game at St James's, which is uh, terrific. And probably, in essence, those three points are enough to, to stay up. But I, from my own viewpoint, my disappointment was that we had 31 points in 31 games at the time. And I, I know one is not to know this, but another five points was going to be enough. And I, I'd have thought by my record that I, I would have got those points. I might not have won at Newcastle, but I think I might have been able to beat Stoke at home or something. Like I say, whatever way the results would have gone, I think we'd have got the points. And I've been hoping then that maybe that uh, you get a chance to uh, to actually say to the to the owner, look, 
this has been a really, really tough season. If we're going to try and make this club the club that it should be, you know, we've got to do something. And it's not the case of just spending money for the sake of spending money, but we've got to improve the, the standard of player at the football club. It really is as simple as that. So at the end of the day, yeah, that is really what I wanted to do and what I did or tried to do at most clubs, improve, improve players' performance by improving their mindset. This is the most important thing. First of all, the club in Sunderland, it might be in the northeast. It might be away miles and miles away from London. But at the end of the day, this is a, a historic club. And you should want to play for it. And the players that you want to bring to the football club should be better than the ones that you have in there. That's the whole idea of it. So those things are... And to not get that chance, I suppose, listen, you know... Um, it, it it is what it is. You you know you have to you have to win the games. And the Canio comes in and starts to complain the usual the usual things. You start to complain as all managers do. Seemingly, oh the players are not fit enough. And then suddenly when when he's asked about his own fitness regime at the start of the next season, he says, oh oh my fitness is for Christmas time. Well well done. Mate. I don't know how you, I don't know how you can get fitness for Christmas. You might not be there as it turns out he wasn't. So. <laughs> I get um, I get obviously angry with with his particular comments, but that doesn't matter. It's 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 the whole issue. Did you ask me a question? Did I think that they would drop like a stone? I was obviously hoping not that they wouldn't do. Did I think that the that the the caliber of player needed to be improved greatly for to make a a, a proper stab in the, in the Premier League? Absolutely. The clues are all there because people like yourself, Dick Avocat, you know, really successful managers. The, the, and they've proven they've got nothing left to prove. They've won things across the game. They know how to manage clubs. Yet at Sunderland, they, they can't. So the, the clues are there that there's there's something else going on but I, that stops but, 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 people from being successful. But I, that's exactly. But but I wanted to disprove that. Really disprove that. That, that listen that this this football club is actually really worth not worth fighting for. It is a big big club. And people don't, don't seem to realise that, particularly, you know, so players, for instance, who, who maybe think it's like a, let, let, let's say you're getting somebody from, from, from the continent who will feel that, uh, well, Sunderland is just like a stepping stone. Sunderland shouldn't be a stepping stone for these. And, I, and it's easy for me to say this and pontificate away, but it's how, how I've always felt about it, you know, and to get, to get 15 or 16 months to try and put something right, it was not was not what I envisaged anyway setting out in the place. Obviously, I'd got these, as you set out to go, you have these dreams that you want to, you want Sunderland to be competing. And um I, I just just not not occasionally, but being up there, being a being a top six side in the division, trying to break through, and something that you know that that had been lost a little bit at Aston Villa and that was able to to revive them in that sense. And I felt I, I could do the same at Sunderland. So to be to be to pitch pitched in with other, as you say, other really good managers and say, well, what is it? Is there a hoodoo about Sunderland? Absolutely not. Well, Sunderland's not a hoodoo at all. It's given you need a little bit of time. You need a little bit of uh, a little bit of something. And eventually, you know, fifteen or sixteen months. I just um, I was massively disappointed when um, when the owner said, no, listen, uh, we're making a change. Yeah, I mean, just quickly on our on on Sunday in our current state because we we start talking before we started uh, recording, but we've got relatively new owners doing things slightly different way, bringing in a lot of young players to the club. I'm not sure if you've had a chance to see us in action on the TV much this season, but I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on the fact that we've 
we've finally managed to get out of League One and we're trying to establish ourselves once again as a, as a championship club. Yeah, well, I went to Wembley because uh, oh. I had, obviously uh, I had a big, big interest in, in both teams. Uh, Sunderland and Wickham Wanderers and to see see the number of Sunderland fans that turned up for that game and funnily enough about three or four nights ago I was in uh, I was in Glasgow and this young, young fellow come up and uh, you know I was doing this little um, uh, Q&A and fellow come up and said he was a big Sunderland fan and and the best day of his very young life was that was the game against Wickham Wanderers at Wembley so there you are so and he, he had to be very young. So, yeah, you're watching the thing from a distance. They've got some really exciting young players playing in the side. And um, it's a tough old league to get out of. But um, And I suppose there's always the, there's an element that when you get promotion, first of all, no matter how big you are, that, that's sort of stabilising. But if you've got an opportunity to push on, you've just mentioned beforehand about the, about the home record, if you start improving that, the home record. There's, there's no doubt that 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 even even with first year trying that uh, to to make the top six should really be should be the ambition. Now, I mean, I don't for one minute want to put any sort of pressure on the manager. The last thing I would want is somebody telling me that where 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 my football club should be. But Sunderland, it looks it looks and if it it looks as if it's in the up. But overall, yeah, the club looks as if it's it's heading in the right direction. Yeah, I think I've I've just about recovered of that Wembley weekend. I think just about <laughs> just about that. But um, but your last managerial job was Nottingham Forest back in twenty nineteen. You've now finished your book. That's out there for the the world to digest. And you sign off by saying you're looking forward to to the next chapter. So what yeah, might that next chapter involve? I didn't I didn't know whether it was the next chapter of the book or the next chapter of one. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I mentioned uh, I mentioned that you mentioned Forrest uh, about uh, fifteen or sixteen months ago. So, well, have I have I definitely known that I was going to get nineteen games at a club that I'd spent ten years as a player? I definitely wouldn't have turned up for that one, <laughs> particularly since we won the last three games of the season. But uh, no, so uh, the um, the chief executive, the Greek chief executive, pulled me in and said, "The way you want to run the football club is not the way we want to run it." And I thought, "Fine, okay, not a problem." So uh, again, and not having not having spent a, a penny at the club, I came in in January time. Listen, signs are everyone to their own. The great thing about owning a football club is you can make the decision. You can make whatever decisions you want, and uh, so that's the case. But um, we'll, we'll honestly, we'll see. We'll see what develops. I enjoyed doing the book. I must admit, I thoroughly enjoyed this morning. Thank you very much indeed. And uh, listen, we'll 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 see what happens. You know. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Well, it would be great to see you back, uh, paying us a visit to the stadium at some point. More so if it's a, it's a social visit. We don't want you in the away dugout, by the way, planning our downfall. <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, absolutely. And I've been meaning to do that, honestly, in the in the last two years. But I, I just had to go. I had to go to Wembley for the game, you know. So, and that uh, if we'd been able to have beaten Everton and even got to the semi final. That would have been nice to to got to Wembley there just to see the crowd in it. But but listen, you know, League Cup final against Manchester City happened afterwards, so uh, you know, yeah, there was something can, to be looking forward to. We could we could always dream it might happen again in my lifetime, but we'll see. But on <laughs> on that note, I just want to say it's been an absolute privilege and a pleasure and a joy to speak to you uh, today, Martin. I'm sure all Sunderland fans out there wish you all the best for whatever the next chapter might hold, and thank you very much for your time. Not at all. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Enough about uh, enough about my fascination with the, the football club. <laughs>
Good stuff. Hopefully we'll see you soon. And, and thanks again to everyone listening. Uh, firstly, uh, go out and buy Martin O'Neill's uh, new book. Um, as I said, absolutely fascinating. Um, and secondly, please donate to our Christmas fundraiser for the Sunderland Community Soup Kitchen. They make every penny go a long way and anything you can donate will make a huge difference. All the information is on the website. We thank you uh, for your generosity and keep uh, checking out the website for all the ways you can help us hit our target on that front. Uh, but from us, it's bye for now. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.